Well, good morning, Rocky Peak. We are getting close to Christmas, aren't we? We are approaching there and excited about that. Uh, if you're brand new here, I want to welcome you. My name's Michael. I'm one of the pastors. We're going to go into our time of teaching right now. And inside your program is a green and white message note sheet. I encourage you to take that out. Let me just say one more thing about these tickets, too. Uh, for, for Christmas is that, um, as Kelly said, when you go out today on the patio, you'll be able to pick up tickets for whatever service you want. And we want to encourage you to take as many as you need for the people you're inviting or whatever. But uh, if this week, as the week goes on or whatever, you always say, hey, some of these people can't come or we thought family were coming, but they can't come, would you do us a favor and be sure to bring those tickets back? Because what we're trying to do is we're, as you know, running out of space here as a church. And so we expect Christmas Eve to be pretty packed, and we're just trying to kind of distribute people evenly at the service. So when you come, there's a seat. And so if you take way more tickets than you need, then that's just going to be like open seats that, that may not be used and be over, oversubscribed at another service. So take as many as you need, um, but uh, if you figure, you know, it's time to go, like, hey, we're not going to need, just bring them back next week, turn them in, and uh, then we'll have, we want to have room for everyone. Does that sound like a plan? Okay. So even if it doesn't, still do it. All right. Uh, so... We're going to pray and and jump in. You guys ready to go? Okay. God, we're just excited to be here to pursue you as a church, and we truly want to be part of that team that's unleashing a movement of passionate Christ followers. God, we want to know you. We want to experience you. We want to be transformed by you, and then we want to go out and help transform this world as salt and light. And so, God, we pray that today that you would come by the power of your spirit, you would teach and lead, you'd open our eyes. I think it's Psalms. 119, which says, open my eyes that I may see wonderful things from your law. God, would you open our eyes to see who we are, how you work in a powerful way. We pray this in your name. Amen. So today we're continuing this series that we've been in for the last few weeks called Sent. And uh, the, the subtitle is uh, about the storms, right? And so, um, so if you're brand new here, this is actually the fifth and the final sub-series, kind of a mini-series, in a much longer series called Sent, which is a study of one of the most important books in our New Testament called the book of Acts, which sort of documents, describes, and details uh, the movement of Jesus from once it starts in Jerusalem, right for the resurrection, uh, next 30 years, it spreads across the Roman Empire. So in this fifth and final series, we've been watching as one of the key characters, key player, one of the key leaders in the early movement of Jesus, a man named Paul, the Apostle Paul. He's arrived with his team in Jerusalem, but he's arrested on false charges uh, transferred a couple days later to the capital of the Roman province of Judea, uh, which Jerusalem's a part, which is uh, at Caesarea on the seacoast, 65 miles away. And for the last two years, he's been in prison as he's gone through a series of trials and hearings. And even though it's obvious that he's uh, innocent, uh, the Roman governors, both of them that he has, uh, they kind of keep him under wraps. They want to keep him there for political reasons or personal reasons. And so finally, last week, he is forced to exercise his rights as a Roman citizen to appeal his case to Rome to change jurisdiction. And so, uh, so today we're going to pick up the account where he is going to be uh, getting on board with a couple of his friends uh, as a Roman prisoner under guard, and they're going to be taking this kind of a dangerous, really sort of a treacherous uh, journey, as we'll see, to Rome, the capital where this whole story of Acts has been leading from day one, from Jerusalem to Rome, has been the story of the message of Jesus expanding. And so if you have your Bibles there, I want you to open up to chapter uh, 27. And if you have your apps, go ahead and turn them on. And we're going to pick it up at verse 1. And so uh, it says, "When, when it was decided that we would set sail for Italy... 
Paul and some other prisoners were handed over to a Roman centurion, an officer named Julius, who belonged to the Imperial Regiment, right? So let's set this up. Uh, Two or three things I want you to notice. First of all, notice how it starts off. It says, when it was decided that, what's the next word? We. Let's say it together. What's the next word? We. We, yeah. When it was decided that we. So this is the fourth and final time in the book of Acts we will see what we call a we section. So remember, Luke is our author, and so once again, he is traveling with Paul on this journey. And so what that means is this whole account that we're going to be reading today was firsthand experience. In fact, this, this journal that he keeps, this log of, of this, uh, this journey, is going to be one of the best and most accurate and thorough and detailed uh, reports of ancient sea travel in all of ancient literature. And so it's going to be an amazing account. Uh, a second thing, I want you to notice when he says we, so what we find out is that he's going to be traveling with Paul, you know, he, he is traveling with Paul, but also a man named Aristarchus, we'll be meeting him in a couple minutes, uh, he was one of Paul's converts, a Gentile convert from the city of Thessalonica um, that we, went, you know, we met a long time ago, that both Luke and Aristarchus had been part of the team traveling with Paul to Jerusalem to deliver this large offering for the poor Jewish believers. And apparently they've stayed around the last couple of years in the area to take care of Paul while he's been in prison. And so now the three of them will be traveling as friends on this journey together. Uh, Next thing you need to notice is that this journey is going to start, we're assuming, from Caesarea, the capital where Paul has been in prison the last two years. And you're going to need your maps today. So I want you to take your map out right now. Let's get oriented. On the lower right-hand section, I want you to find the city of Caesarea on the seacoast, and there's a number two by it. Now, I will not be calling out numbers all the way through today because I can't remember them. But um, I'm going I'm to be pointing out the city as we go, and so you're going to want to follow this journey. So keep that map at hand, right? So here we're going to take off. They're taking off from Caesarea. Um, he's under the care of this Roman centurion named Julius. So we board a ship from um, Adramitium. So find Adramitium. We're going to go up to the center of your map and a little bit to the right, and you'll see Adramitium. It's, it's above north of Ephesus, Ephesus, so it's a city in the Roman province of Asia. So this is a ship that has started there. That's where its, its home base is. It sailed down to um, Caesarea uh, with some sort of cargo. Now it's about to go back, and so they're going to hitch a ride. Now, in the ancient world, a lot of people don't know this, in the ancient world, there were no passenger liners. Okay, so there was only cargo ships. So if you want to get around and sea travel, it's not like you take a cruise, uh, you're going to have to like hitch a ride on a cargo ship. And so that's what they do. And so they, they take off. We board a ship uh, from Adramitium, and we're about to sail for ports along the coast of the province of Asia, and we put out to sea. Now, here he says Aristarchus, this third member of their crew, uh, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, was with us. So it's these three guys, pa- uh, Paul, <coughs> Luke, and Aristarchus. And we're going to find out later more about their traveling companions. So the next day we landed at Sidon. So you can follow that, 70 miles up. And uh, Julius, this centurion, is uh, in kindness to Paul. He allows him to go to his friends that they might provide for his needs. So he kind of gives him shore leave. And uh, from there we put out to sea again and we pass to the Lee of Cyprus. So find the island of Cyprus. Now the Lee of the island, for those of you who are sailors, you'll know this, but if you're not a sailor... The lee of an island is the, the side of the island that's protected by the wind. And so the lee will change based on where the wind is coming from. In this case, uh, they're passing to the north of Cyprus. You can see that on your map. 
uh, because the winds were against us. And so when we had sailed along the open coast, uh, off uh, open sea, along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, you can see those provinces, we landed at Myra in Lycia. Okay, so you can see all that. So at this point now, they've gone as far north as they need to go. At this point, they need to go west. So they're going to have to transfer ships. Now, in the ancient world, Rome was dependent on grain from other parts of the empire. One of the breadbaskets of the empire was Egypt. And so there were many large cargo ships that would sail from Alexandria, which is in northern Egypt, the second largest city in the Roman Empire. There was many large cargo ships that were grain ships. And so we believe that this was a grain ship headed for Rome. And so here's what's going to happen. Let me kind of set the scene up here. Um, we actually know quite a bit about this. We're pretty sure that this whole voyage is taking place in 59 AD, in the year 59 AD. And Luke is going to tell us that this voyage takes place uh, right uh, soon after the, the Feast of Atonement, or the, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. We know that in 59 AD, Yom Kippur happened on October the 5th. All right, so the sailing that they're about to tell us is going to happen in early October. Now, here's the deal. In the ancient world, any time past mid-September to mid-November was considered the ancient shoulder season for sailing, and it was very dangerous. Because during that time, uh, the seas are starting to get rough with storms. In fact, Lynn and I, uh, last fall, not this fall, but a year ago fall, we actually sailed from Athens to Ephesus at this time of the year. It was in October and uh, the seas were so rough that we were supposed to stop and have dinner at Mykonos, uh, one of the Greek islands, but our ship was not even able to port. The seas were too rough. And so everyone on board was seasick. Which is kind of, so from, from the middle of September on until the middle of November, actually November 11th was the shoulder season considered very dangerous. After November 11th, ships didn't sail. You do not sail until the spring, maybe earliest, maybe February. Those three months, no one sails. It's just absolutely too dangerous. Not to sail the open season. It's just too dangerous. And so they're sailing in early October. So what's going to happen is that uh, they find the centurion. The Roman centurion finds his ship uh, that's Alexandrian ship. It's a large, we believe it's a grain ship most likely. It's fairly large. Uh, we're going to find out later 276 passengers. So these are soldiers, prisoners, and sailors. And, uh, and so it's a fairly large ship, and they're going to they're gonna go on this ship, and they're gonna, right away they're going to hit some stiff winds. And so Paul is going to go to the centurion, and he's going to say, hey, listen, I don't think this is a good idea. It's mid-October. We need to stop here and, and just harbor here for the winter. Now, Paul at this point was a seasoned traveler. Remember, most people didn't travel as seas. By this point in his life, he has already sailed over 3,000 miles, which is very unusual in, in sharing Christ. Um, at this point in his life, we know from other passages that he has been shipwrecked three times. Three times, he's gone down, his ship has gone down, and he's been like floating at sea. One of those times, he spent 24 hours in the open seas. And so he's an experienced traveler. And so there's no indication that God is telling him something bad's going to happen. Just based on his experience, he's going to go to the, the Roman commander. He's going to go to the pilot of the ship and say, hey, listen, this is not looking so good. I think bad things are going to happen if we continue. We need to, start, we need to stop this. 
But the, 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 uh, the pilot of the ship, the owner of the ship, the centurion, I'm going to look at him like, what do you know? You're a pastor. What do pastors know about real life? Let's trust, let's trust like, let's leave this to the professionals. And so they're going to head on, right? So let's see what happens. By the way, this is why you should always listen to your pastor. But anyway, anyway, so, um, so we pick it up in verse 6. So the centurion finds an Alexandrian ship heading for Italy, and they put us on board, and we made slow headway. It was kind of tough, tough going for many days. We had difficulty arriving off of Nidus, is how you say that, and find that on your map. And when, um, when the wind did not allow us to hold our course, we sailed to the lee, that is actually in this case is the southern side of Crete, opposite Salmoni. And so we moved along the coast with difficulty. It was just a tough row. And we came to a place called Fair Havens. You can see that on your map near the town of Lycia. Now, much time had been lost. So he said that well, this, is not, like, this is not going well. The winds have been heavy already. And sailing had already become dangerous because by now it was after the Day of Atonement, October 5th. It's already past October 5th at this point. So Paul, he warns him, he says, Men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to the ship and cargo and maybe our lives only. But the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, you know, who are you, followed the advice of the pilot and the owner of the ship. And since the harbor was unsuitable for winter, it just wasn't a great harbor. You know, there's not a lot of Wi-Fi, not too many restaurants, um, movies not showing. And, and so they're hoping to reach Phoenix. You can see that on your map and winter there. And so there was a har- that was a harbor and creek facing the southwest and the northwest. So they decide, no, we're not going to lose. So we're going to go on and we're gonna, we, we want to get to Phoenix. And so when a gentle south wind begins, like they take that as a good sign, and they begin to blow, and when they see their opportunity, so they, they weigh anchor, and they set sail from the shore of Crete. But that's when it happens. So it starts out great, gentle south wind, but once they hit the open seas, all of a sudden it happens. Now, I want to know, how many of you have seen the movie A Perfect Storm? All right? I want you to picture that movie. Because what's going to happen is an amazing hurricane is going to hit. Now, we call our hurricanes today by, by men's and women's names, right? Just had Hurricane Matthew or famous Hurricane. There's a hurricane called the Northeaster is going to hit. It's a massive, a massive violent storm. And so you need to picture the rest of this chapter in the midst of a violent storm. Now, I say violent storm. If you remember the perfect storm, you remember... These huge waves that are threatening to come over, they're constantly coming over the ship, threatening to destroy it. We're going to find out this storm is so violent that for many days, they're going to go not able to see the sun. It's going to be in total darkness. Now imagine how terrifying this is. You are not in a Coast Guard cutter. You are in a wooden vessel that is is in danger of blowing apart with any wave that comes. You have not seen for days, you've not seen the sun. You can't tell if it's night or day. Uh, Waves are coming over. You're going up. You're coming down. It's in constant danger of death. And remember, since it's an ancient ship, not only is it a wooden ship, there is no radar. There is no radio. There's no sonar. There's no uh, diesel engines. There's no electric pumps. There are no lights. Uh, you are out there in the middle of the sea being thrashed in constant danger. In fact, we're going to see it's so dangerous and it's so uh, up and down. Even those seasoned sailors, they're going to stop eating. And catch this, 
you got to picture this darkness, waves, the up and down, living in constant uh, threat of death. Uh, it goes on, catch us, for two weeks. Midway through this, it, Paul included, they're going to give up hope. It's like, we're going down. But at this stage of the game, they're just doing whatever they can to save themselves. And so they're going to take several measures to try to save the ship. And so here we go. So uh, in verse 13, so when a gentle south wind begins to blow, they see their opportunity. So they weighed anchor and they sailed along the shore of Crete. But before very long, a wind of hurricane force called the Northeaster swept down from the islands. Catch it, hurricane. We've seen this, right? The, the reporter out there with the yellow slicker on with nothing to say, right? We've seen this, you know. Wow, it's really blowing. So, uh, and so the ship was caught by the storm and it couldn't head into the wind. It couldn't make any headway. And so uh, they gave way to it and they were driven along. And now they're just trying to, to kind of lighten the ship in any way they can. They're, they're taking down the sails uh, and they're going to take a series of steps to try to protect themselves from disaster. And so, uh, so they're just giving way. We're driven along. So as we passed to the lee of a small island named Kauda, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure. So the first thing they're going to do is let's get the lifeboat up. We may need it later, but we also don't want waves going in that lifeboat and like throwing the ship off. And so they're doing all they can. So they, they could hardly get the lifeboat. Taking all these sailors, they couldn't even hardly get the lifeboat up in the midst of these pitching waves and the darkness. But they finally hoisted it on board. And so the next step is they pass ropes under the ship to hold it together. So this was a common tactic in, in times of, of extreme danger. Let's try to tie this boat together. And so because they were afraid they would run uh, aground in the sandbars of Sirtis, that is 450 miles to the south. Uh, it's off the coast of, Lit, uh, of uh, Libya. But they are being driven so rapidly, they're afraid they're going to be driven there. And uh, so they lower the sea anchor to try to slow things down. And they let the ship be driven along. We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. This is worth big money. But they're going to throw uh, anything to lighten the ship, make it more buoyant. And on the third day, they throw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. And when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, so maybe we're in a week into it now, uh, the storm continued raging. And catch this, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. Now remember, who's writing this? Luke. Who is we? We is Luke, Paul, and Aristarchus. We think we're goners. That's going to become important later on. But it's at this point, in the, low, the, the lowest point, when they've given up hope, they think they're about to die, God shows up. And just a quick sidebar here. Have you ever noticed that God tends to wait till you think you're about done? It's like, he's like, no, they're not ready yet. They still have some hope left. I'm going to hold out. <laughs> have you ever noticed this? Why is it the, the last minute, right? The last minute. How many times in the Bible is it the last minute when Pharaoh is on one side and the Red Sea is behind you, you know? It's like, it's just the way God works. Why? Because when God meets us, this is all sidebar, by the way. When God meets us at the time of greatest danger, we never forget it. If God met us early in the danger, it'd make a great story for our life group next week. But in a year, we've forgotten it. But when you're in a plane going down and you're almost ready to hit and God rescues you, you never forget that. 
and it does something to you. It changes you. And so anyway, at this point, I'm guessing we're about a week in. It doesn't give us the details, but, you know, he's kind of giving us some chronology. About a week in, they're, they're giving up all hope, and God shows up. And here's what happens. In the middle of the night, uh, about midnight, uh, an angel appears to Paul. Now, this is not normal in Paul's life. But an angel shows up, and he says, Jesus sent me, and he's got a message. Number one, you're going to make it. You're going to survive this. You're not going to die. Number two, everyone with you on the ship, all 275 other people, they're going to make it. Number three, you're going to lose the ship. It's going to be a shipwreck. You're going to land, you're going to hit an island, and it's going to destroy the ship. And number four, you need to have everyone make sure they stay on the ship if they want to survive. So the next morning, Paul gets everyone together. Remember, they haven't eaten for a long time now. They're desperate. They're like wet rats. They're freezing. This has gone on living in fear for a week. These seasoned sailors, soldiers, prisoners are all giving up hope. And Paul stands up, and you got to picture this, in the middle of the storm and the pitching waves. This is not, the scene hasn't changed yet. And I just picture him calling out over the wind, yelling out this message. But he calls out a message of encouragement. And so let's see what happens. So after they got in verse 21, a long time without food, Paul stands up before them and says, men, I love this, you should have taken my advice. Isn't that awesome? I'm not saying. I'm just saying. Um, you know, it, it sounds like he's just going, uh, before I tell you the good news, I just want to say, I told you so. I, just for the record. But I actually think there's something more going on than that. The reality was, if they'd listened to him, they wouldn't be in this jam. What he's about to tell them is very important. And it's very important they don't make the mistake of last time and don't listen to them this time. So sometimes with your, you're raising your kids, you pull them aside, they make a mistake you told them not to make, you'll remind them, hey, I told you this. And it's not to like rub it in. You're trying to help them understand, hey, when I tell you something, you need to listen because there's consequences. Like I, the, I'm telling you for a reason. And I think that may be what's going on here. And so uh, Paul stands up and says, man, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Um, and then you would have spared yourselves this damage and loss. The point is, what I'm about to tell you, you need to listen this time. Right? He says, but I, I, now I urge you to keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost. Now, now, remember how, this is in the midst of the waves. You're going up and down. You've given up all hope. You haven't eaten in a week. And yet he's making this incredible prophecy. And of course, the question is, well, how do you know that? Like, who are you and how do you know that? He says, the ship will be destroyed. But he said, last night, an angel of the God, and I love how he describes God, the God to whom I belong and whom I serve. We're going to come back to that later. He stood beside me, and he said, do not be afraid, Paul, because you must stand trial before Caesar. This is his plan for your life. And God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, man, because I have faith that it will happen just as God told me. But he says, nevertheless, we must, we're going to run aground in some island. That's what's going to happen. And so now we're going to jump ahead. Let's say that's at the halfway point. We don't know for sure, but it kind of seems like that. On the 14th night, so there's not, there's not like immediately this happens, but on the 14th night, we're still being driven across the Adriatic Sea when about midnight, the, the sailors sense that they're approaching land. And we're not sure how maybe uh, they're hearing the, the crashing of, of the... Uh, of the, the breakers against the, the sea, uh, against the shore, we don't know. 
but they begin to take soundings. So we're gonna, they're going to let down a rope uh, with lead on the end, and they're going to measure you know, how long that rope is to see how deep is the water. And they find out that the water is 120 feet deep, but a short time later, they take soundings again, and they find it, it's 90. So this is both good news and bad news. The good news is we seem to be approaching land. The bad news is we're approaching land. So in the middle of a storm when you're being driven, you're not going into a harbor. You're going into you don't know what. It could be rocks. It could be cliff. Uh, it could be sandbars. This could be you're about to die. And so they're on high alert. And uh, fearing that they would be dashed against the rocks, they drop four anchors from the stern, from the back of the boat, and they pray for daylight. So they're just trying to slow down uh, their, their forward advance. And so now in an attempt to escape from the, sh- the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea pretending they were going to lower some anchors from the bow, from the front of the ship. So remember, they had taken the lifeboat up. These sailors are thinking, hey, I, I think we've got better chance of surviving if we get off in a smaller boat. So they're trying to pretend they're going to lower uh, anchors. It's not room for everyone, but let's get some sailors. Let's get out of here. And this is where Paul sees it. And so he knows this is going to be disastrous. So in, in 31, this is why he needed them to listen Paul said to the centurion, the soldiers, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be safe. There, there's no guarantee. God said you need to stay with the ship. And so, uh, so by, by now, the centurion's listening to Paul. And so the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboat, and they let it drift away. So just before dawn, this is beautiful, Paul urges them to eat. So he calls them together. He takes a true leadership role now. These 275 men, you know, hardened sailors, uh, soldiers and prisoners. He calls them together. He says, hey guys, we're about to hit land and you haven't eaten for two weeks and you're going to need your strength. And so you need to force down some food at this point because you're going to need to swim to shore or we're going to need a shore. You're going to need your strength. And it's really beautiful because it's almost like a communion service. It's not apparently, but it's almost like he's going to break bread like Jesus did before he fed the 5,000. He's going to break bread. And there with the 275 pagans, he's going to lead them in prayer to the real God. And so he's going to take this role of spiritual leadership. And can, I, can, I, can I say this? Just a quick sidebar here. There's so many things I want to say that I don't have time for, but I'll just like, go talk really fast. Um, <laughs> as followers of Jesus, our calling is to be a place of peace in the midst of storm. And when the world is falling apart, as believers, we're to be the ones who know our God. In Daniel, it says, those who know their God take action. Right? And so as believers, in the midst of crisis, our calling is to go deep into Jesus, to hear his sense that he's with us, and so we can bring peace in the midst of disaster. And so this is what Paul is doing. It's just a beautiful scene. And so he says in verse 33, the last 14 days, you have been in constant suspense. I mean, you know, in the darkness, every, you didn't know if the next wave was going to crush us. You've gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. I urge you now to take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you, I promise, will lose a single hair from his head. And after he said this, he took some bread and he gave thanks to God in front of all of them. And he breaks it and they began to eat and they were were encouraged. So he encouraged them. And they ate some food themselves. Altogether, there were 276 of us on board and we'd eaten as much as we wanted. We're all full. We, We threw everything overboard now to make the ship as light as we could for the impact. And when daylight came, these sailors, experienced as they were, they didn't recognize the land. They're not sure where they are, but they see a bay with a sandy beach, and it's like, hey, let's make for that. That looks like a good plan. 
So they decide to run the ship aground. And so they cut loose the anchors that have been slowing them down. They, they uh, left them in the sea. At the same time, they untied the ropes, held the rudders so they could can, they can steer. And for the first time in two weeks, they hoisted, hoisted the foresail and they made for the beach, right? But the, wind, um, but the ship struck a sandbar and ran aground. And so the bow, the front of the boat, stuck fast. It couldn't move. And so the, the stern was being broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf. And so this creates a crisis now. The ship is, is breaking apart. People are trying, how do we get in? So the soldiers decide they want to kill the prisoners because by Roman law, if a prisoner escapes, it may cost you your life. But the centurion, he's so close to Paul by now, he wants to preserve him. So the soldiers plan to kill the prisoners to prevent them from swimming away and escaping. But the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life, and they keep him out from carrying out the plan. So the centurion orders that anyone who could swim would, okay, it's time to get off abandoned ship, swim to shore. Uh, those who can't, he tells them, hey, look for any planks or any part of the boat that's, a, you know, kind of any beam or anything that's breaking apart. Jump, lash yourself to it. Try to make it to shore. And sure enough, in this way, everyone reached land safely. And I can just picture this with, in, in that kind of gray, it's still stormy, this gray weather. I want you to picture this 276 men most of them eaten for two weeks until right before this, wet, cold, freaking out, washing ashore across the sandy beach, 276 men, like 276 Robinson Crusoes, kind of just kind of washing ashore and crawling up this beach. And I, I could just picture many of them falling on their faces and kissing the shore and thanking the gods that they're alive. But at this point, of course, they don't know where they are, and neither do we, and next week we'll find out. But for today, I want to talk about storms, right? I want to talk about storms and how God brings or allows storms to come into our life and what God accomplishes in the storms, the role that storms play in the life of a follower of Jesus. And so there in your note sheet, you have a section It's called Storms 101, Two Life Lessons. And so I want to jump in, and the first one goes like this. um, That as follower of Jesus, sooner or later, um, that everyone goes through storms. You're a follower of Jesus, you love Jesus, that sooner or later you're going to go through a storm. Now, this is important because for many of us, deep down inside, we tend to assume, and listen carefully, if we love Jesus... If we are following Jesus, if we're being led by the Holy Spirit, if we're living lives of obedience, God will protect us from storms. Now, if you were to ask us, and press, if I were to say, well, do you think that life will always be easy and there will never be hard times? I think most of us in a church like Rocky Peak, we would say, no, we, we understand. We live in a fallen world. We're going to go through hard times. But I want to distinguish today between hard times and storms. And what I mean by a storm is a severe event that challenges our faith of whether God is even with us. Like, so most of us, we understand this, that as Christians, we we understand we may lose our job. We we, we get that. As Christians, we understand we may go to the doctor and get a bad diagnosis. As, as, As Christians, that there may be, our children may be in some accident. You know, we, we understand that we live in a fallen world. Bad things happen, right? So we, understand, we don't expect life to be perfect, but we deep inside often do not expect to go through storms. We 
We may not be surprised if we get a diagnosis of cancer, but we are surprised if the doctor says your cancer is inoperable and you have six months to live. We're not surprised that our son or daughter breaks their arm in a bicycle accident. But if they go down and die in that accident, we did not expect that. We're not surprised if we lose our job, but we are shocked if we're out of work for 18 months and lose our house and everything we work for. We don't expect our life to be perfect and protected from anything, but we didn't expect to be the one who was in the theater when the terrorists brought the gun and we were shot and died. You see what I'm saying? And many times we, we tend to assume if we walk with Jesus and if we love God and if we listen to his Holy Spirit and we follow, that we will be protected from these major tragedies and storms of life. And here's what I want you to catch. If within the book of Acts has taught us anything, it says that's not true. That what Jesus promises us is that he will be with us that he will strengthen us, that he'll empower us, that he will meet us, he will shape us, and he will use us. But he never promises we won't go through storms. And this is important, and you see this so much in the life of Paul, and not just in this physical storm, but you see it in this storm that he's been in for the last two plus years. And I want to take you back to Acts chapter 19, to a passage that I went over quickly at the time because I wanted to save it for today. But in Acts 19, for those of you who are here then, you may remember there was the high point of Paul's ministry in the book of Acts. He'd gone to the city of Ephesus, which was the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire, and God used him in amazing ways. That he did incredible miracles, exorcisms. As a result of all of that, the whole city of Ephesus heard about Jesus, and not just the city, but the whole Roman province of Asia. And right in the middle of that story, Luke does a quick sidebar. He stops the story right in the middle, and he throws in this preview of coming attractions like good authors often do, a hint, a foreshadowing of where the story is going. And it's there on your note sheet. It's in chapter 19, and right in the middle of the Ephesus narrative, Luke stops right in the middle for no apparent reason, and he says, after these things were finished, after the miracles and the teachings on Paul purposed in his spirit, in the spirit, to go to Jerusalem. And after he'd passed through Macedonia and Achaia, the Roman provinces, and he said, and after I've been there, I must go to see Rome. So right in the middle of the story, Luke says, time out, just so you know, right here in Ephesus, way back here, and now it makes sense as we come to the end of Acts, he was really telling us a preview of coming attractions, right here in Ephesus, when things are at their high point and God is really on the move, he says, by the way, that Paul purposed in his spirit at this point in his life that when he leaves Ephesus, he's going to go to the regions of Macedonia, like where Philippi is, and Achaia, like where Corinth is, and then he's going to go back to Jerusalem, and then he's going to go to Rome. That's his itinerary. Now, it's interesting. This phrase here, I want you to underline it on your, on your note sheet of purpose in his spirit. I chose the New American Standard Version for this passage because it's a very literal pan, uh, translation, and we really need that here. So this one says that Paul purposed in his spirit. Now, honestly, in the Greek, the Greek is not as clear as you'd like. The question is, is Luke saying that Paul purposed in his spirit, meaning that he just made a decision 
that I decided this was my travel itinerary? Or is Paul saying that I am being led by the Holy Spirit, and based on that, this is my travel itinerary? Obviously, uh, the translators of the New American Standard, they understand it to be the second. So they translate like this, that he purposed in, uh, in the Spirit, capital S, purpose in the Holy Spirit. I think they're right. And the reason I think that is at the end of that verse, he says, after I have been there to Jerusalem, I must also see Rome. And throughout Acts, this statement, I must do something, is a little word in the Greek called day, and we call it a divine necessity. In other words, I must means that God is calling me. And we see it throughout Acts. So it would seem like that what is going on is while Paul is in Ephesus, the Holy Spirit is showing, here is my plan for your life. Here is the next step of your journey. After you lead Ephesus, it's, you've kind of finished this whole work of mine in the Aegean Sea area. So the next step for you is going to leave. We're going to, going to revisit the churches around the Aegean Sea in Macedonia and Achaia. You're going to collect this large offering from the Gentile Christians to take to the poor in Jerusalem. Then you're going to go to Jerusalem, and then you're going to go to Rome. In other words, God is giving him a vision, his vision for his life. Here's your next assignment. Now, if you've been with us in this series, you know that's exactly what happens. After he leaves Ephesus in chapter uh, 19 and 20, he heads on to Macedonia, and then Achaia, and then he reverses. He collects all this money. He gathers this team. They travel to Jerusalem. And so when he comes to Jerusalem, everything is right on target. Everything's right on schedule. What the Holy Spirit has put in his heart, he has carried it out to a T. There's a sense of God's with him. And then all of a sudden, a storm breaks out. And I'm not just talking about the literal storm later. I'm talking about a metaphorical storm, a spiritual storm. When he gets to Jerusalem, he gets arrested. And then he's, after he's arrested, he's transferred to Caesarea, the Roman capital. And then he goes through two years in prison as a result of an unjust and corrupt political system. And after two years, he is forced to appeal his case to Rome, which means, yes, he's going to Rome, but catches, he's going as a criminal in chains. Paul has never been to Rome before. There is a church there. He's written a letter there, but he has never gone. When he goes in, he wants to go with a good reputation. He is coming now as a criminal uh, a chained criminal. That's not exactly the, the best impression you want to make. So his whole vision of how this was going to work out is going down the tubes. And now, he, once he gets on the ship, the ship, they almost die. I mean, and it's like two weeks, almost so bad that halfway through, He's almost, they've given up all hope of making it to Rome. Are you with me? This is a pretty disastrous two years. Everything was on track. I thought I understood what God was doing in my life. He'd given me his vision. He's with me. I'm going to go Macedonia, Achaia. Then we're going to Jerusalem and then Rome. Everything is right on track. And then everything breaks, like all hell breaks loose. Everything goes wrong. And now he's on a, a prisoner and chains. And now he's about to die to the extent that he gives up hope of ever even reaching Rome. I love the way John Stott, you know, John Stott was an amazing Christian leader of the 20th century. 
one of the top evangelical leaders of the 20th century, author, pastor, and he writes about this. He says, Paul had expressed his intention way back in, remember in, in Acts 19, Paul had expressed his intention to proceed straight from Jerusalem to Rome. That was the plan in his mind. Instead, he was arrested in Jerusalem. He was subjected to endless trials. He was in prison in Caesarea. He was threatened with assassination by the Jews. Remember that when he was going to transfer from Jerusalem? And then he was nearly drowned in the Mediterranean, killed by the soldiers. Remember, they wanted to execute him when they were landing. And poisoned by a snake. That's next week. Each incident seemed to be designed to prevent him from reaching his God-planned, God-promised destination. But here's the thing. The reality is, he was right on track. And I don't know if you remember this, but back in chapter 23 of Acts, when the fall was first arrested in Jerusalem, the storm started, Jesus personally came to appear to Paul in prison in Jerusalem the day after he was arrested. And here's what he told them. There in your note sheet, Acts 23, says, The next night after he was arrested, the Lord, in other words, Jesus, the Lord came and stood by Paul. And, by, and remember, this hardly ever happens in Paul's life. We read it as if it, oh, of course, it, happens, it hardly ever happens. He stood by Paul and he said, Paul, be brave. You have told people in Jerusalem about me. You must, there's that divine necessity again, you must do the same in Rome. And so Jesus had come to Paul right after he's arrested, right when the storm begins, and he said, the assignment I gave you back in Ephesus a couple years ago, it's still on track. And you have to ask yourself, why would Jesus appear at this point, at the start of his imprisonment? And I really believe this. I believe because Jesus knew exactly what was coming. And he knew how Paul's faith was going to be tested. And he knew how frustrating it was going to be. Can you imagine being the Apostle Paul, who had to have some form of ADD, right? He's just like, (laughs) can you imagine him sitting still? He is passionate about taking the message of Jesus where it's never gone before. His plan is not just to go to Rome. We know his plan is is to stop for a while in Rome and go to Spain and share the message of Jesus in Spain where it's never gone. That's his plan. And he is stuck in a Roman prison because of the incompetence and the duplicity and the injustice of these two Roman governors. Can you imagine how many times he was praying to God and pleading for God to get him out? And now he has to almost take matters in his own hand and appeal his case. And now he's in this storm. And it's interesting because it would appear to me, I can't say for sure, but it would appear that Paul has come to a place where he thinks it's never going to happen. He thinks he's going down with his ship. He's not going to make it. In spite of what the Holy Spirit told him in Ephesus, in spite of what Jesus told him, he seems to think he's going to die. And yet at this low point, God shows up in the midst of the storm, and what's he tell him? He says, the plan is still on. The plan I gave you in Ephesus, the plan I told you in Jerusalem over two years ago, the plan is still on. None of this is out of my control. 
You are right where you're supposed to be. And what we study, is, what we learn as we study Acts, we study the Bible, is God does some of his best work in our lives in storms. As followers of Jesus, he never promises we won't go through storms. What he promises, he will be with us, he will strengthen us, he will teach us, he will shape us, and catch us, he will prepare us for our future and the future for us. And one of the ways he does this is in number two. Let's go to number two. One of the reasons storms are so important is because storms require surrender. One of the things that happen when we're storms, it takes us to the core of our being. It forces us to ask questions that we should have asked long ago but never have or never have resolved. See, when a person comes to Jesus, that part of that agreement, part of that arrangement, part of that relationship is we give up rights to ourselves. Part of being a follower of Jesus is we give up rights. We, we no longer belong to ourselves. We belong to him. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? He says, you've been bought with a price. You don't belong to yourself. If you're a follower of Jesus, this is what it means. You give your life. You no longer live to serve you. You live to serve him. You no longer live to carry out your vision. You, you live to carry out his vision. But for many of us, it's not until the storm that we're forced to deal with that reality and whether we're willing to receive that. Before the storm, we often tend to use God for our purposes. I've got a vision for my life. God, would you carry out that vision? If you carry out my vision for my life, I will follow you. But in a storm, it drives us because in the storm, we realize that God's vision and our vision may be different. And so in the storm, it drives us to a place of who do we belong to? Who do we serve? Does God serve me or do I serve him? It takes us to the core of what it means to be a follower of Jesus and it forces a decision upon us. And we make that decision and we surrender that I live for you. I belong to you. I serve you. And this may not be my vision for my life, but I surrender my vision for your vision. And however you want to work, not my will, but your will be done, it releases us and changes us at a core level. We will never be the same. And it prepares us for a life of being full of his Holy Spirit. And it prepares us to be a person where we can hoist up the sail again, and the wind of his Spirit can now carry us. And he can now trust us with his presence and power because we have been broken at the core. And we have surrendered to his leadership and now he can trust us with his presence and a power they could never do before because before we were using him, not serving him. Amen. And so it's so powerful to me that Paul, I don't know where he was emotionally in that storm, but based on what Luke says, we gave up hope. I think Paul gave it up too. I think if Paul was, I think Paul is Luke's hero. It's very clear. He's a spiritual mentor. If Paul was full of faith, I think he would have said, hey, we started giving up, but Paul was not. He says, we gave up. And then Jesus shows up, sends his angel to Paul in the middle of the storm. And I want you to look, and it just strengthens Paul. And it reminds him who he is. And I think it's no accident that Paul puts it in verse 23. 
He says, last night, the angel of the God, and look how he describes God. The God to whom I, what? Let's read it together. The God to whom I belong. First one. The God to whom I belong and whom I serve. For Paul, this is what's on his mind. He's going to describe God in any way he can describe him. At this moment, he says, here's who God is. God is who I belong to. He's the God in whom I serve. And this is what happens when we surrender to God's vision in the midst of a storm. We, come, we become the person to whom we belong to him. And it's your will and not mine. And I serve you. You don't serve me. A couple, uh, last week I talked about this, uh, you know, it's Christmas time, obviously. And uh, I talked about this book that I, I read recently, a, a new book by, Tom, by Tim Keller called Hidden Christmas. And last week we talked about Mary. We talked about Christmas. What does Christmas mean? And we talked about the price that Mary paid to have God with us, Emmanuel. And obviously it was a tremendous honor for Mary to give birth to the Son of God, but it also came at a tremendous sacrifice and price. When Mary got engaged to Joseph, she had a vision for her life. I don't know what it meant, you know, white picket fence around the hut, I don't know. Uh, but she's got a vision for her life. She's a godly woman. And receiving this Christ child into her body was going to require a tremendous sacrifice. She was going to be seen like an immoral woman in a very conservative culture. It's going to cost her her reputation. It's going to cost her over the course of her life a great deal. At the end of her life, she will stand there at the cross watching her son die. In the words of the prophet, a sword will pierce her soul. It's going to cost her. But catch this. It is also going to cost Joseph. He's got a vision for his life. His, his vision for his life is not marrying a woman who's pregnant. It's going to cost him. And when that son is born, it's not going to be his son. He's going to be a father, but it's not the way he thought. And when it comes time to name the son, which is the high honor in a Jewish family at that time, you were like the ruler of your family. It was your high honor. You name the son. You, you can't even name the son. The name's been given by someone else. He's not your son. And life's going to get very dangerous. And soon after that child's going to be born, he's going to have to pack up his family and flee for their lives at night and become refugees and probably in Alexandria in, in Egypt. He's going to live as a refugee. He's going to come back under the fear of the sword. His life is going to be different. If he wants the Christ to be born in their family there's a, and God to be with them and to live with them, there's a price that they have to pay. There's a surrender that has to happen. His vision has to die. God's vision has to be born. And in that context, Tim talks about how this is what it means to be a Christian. It means to die to ourselves. It means to give up our vision for our life and receive God's vision. And that's what it means, but we often don't realize that until the storm hits. And God says, will you follow me even under these conditions? And what we've not often not realized until the storm comes is we've often been willing to follow God if he meets our conditions. And storms drive us deep. And they change us as we surrender. So Tim puts it like this. When you come to Christ, you must drop your conditions. 
What does that mean? Well, it means you give up the right to say, I will obey you if. I will do this if. As soon as you say, I will obey you if, that is not obedience at all. You're saying, you are my advisor. I like to call it my consultant. You know, like a financial consultant. Give you advice and you take it or leave it, right? You're my advisor, not my Lord. I'll be happy to take your recommendations. I might even do some of them. No, if you want Jesus with you, notice this in italics. If you want Jesus with you, God with us, Emmanuel, if you want the Christ to be born in your life, if you want Jesus to dwell with you, if you want to become a follower of Jesus, you have to give up the right to self-determination. This is what we're called to, nothing less. And men and women, it is in the storms of life. There, after two weeks, in the midst of the storm, we've given up all hope, and we feel like we can't go on, that we have to decide, do I belong to myself, or I do belong to Jesus? Am I staying aboard this ship he has me on, or will I, like the sailors, try to escape and get out of this situation? And create my own life. And that decision will determine our destiny. Because if we will listen and bow the knee and say, this is not my vision, it's not what I want, but it's not about what I want. I don't belong to myself, I belong to you. And if this is how you're calling me to serve you, I will surrender. And when a man or woman gets on their knees in the midst of a storm and surrenders to Jesus, I receive your will and calling not my own, something changes at their core that will never be the same. And they now become a person that God can trust with the presence of Christ being born in their life. And the power of Jesus and the presence of Jesus can now come with new fullness and power Because we are no longer using God. We are now where we were created to be, to be used by God. And therein is our joy and our life and our fullness. Therein is Christmas Day in our life when the Son of God is born in us. Amen? Let's pray. Mm. Father, we want Jesus to be born in us. We want to experience his presence in our life. We want to be used and be like him. And so, God, we come. And, God, we thank you for the storms. They are so painful. But we know it's in the storms you do some of your best work. And, God, I'm sure right now that there are many in storms right now. And it's, it's hard to surrender. It's hard to trust. So we pray that you'd give us grace to do that, to get on our knees and say, God, this may not be my vision for my life, but... If this is yours, I trust you that you have a plan and that I'm on my way to my Rome and that your plan is not being thwarted by this storm. You're preparing me for my future calling. And so, God, as we bring our our prayers, as we bring our worship, as we bring our offering, we pray, God, that you would go with us and that we would answer that call to go with you out into the waters, out into the ocean, and that there we would meet you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and worship.